Good morning. Sing that song. I think of others we can be praying for as well, especially as we consider the storm with, I know there's many in the Gulf states and uh, that hurricane bearing down as we, again, just consider those that we can be lifting up in prayer, um, be praying for them as the hurricane has just gone to a overnight almost increase significantly in its force. So we pray for the lives and for the, the believers and for all those who are in its path. Uh, uh, also, just continue to keep in mind what we've been talking about the past few weeks with our the church in Afghanistan that is uh, certainly suffering. Uh, one of the things I got word of early, early this morning was that uh, at least they're saying is that there's there's no more in and out at this point. It's they've gone dark and they're uh, they've just said just pray. That's all you can do for us at this point. So we continue to lift them up in prayer. Uh, as we've already done, as we just prayed for believers around the world this morning. And I bring those things to a reminder because we are to lift up one another's burdens, and it's a, it's a joy to be able to do that. It's a privilege to be able to do that. It's also quite fitting in light of our sermon this morning as we wrap up our study in the book of Haggai. So you can go ahead and turn there if you haven't already to the book of Haggai as we look at the final four verses in this book. While you're turning there, I wanted to, just by way of introduction, I, to study this, I was reminded of a, an event in history, not unfamiliar to you. Um, immediately after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the weeks that followed in December of 1941, the Japanese launched an attack on the Philippine Islands to claim them as part of their efforts to secure all the major territories of the Pacific. U.S. was caught unprepared as they were at Pearl Harbor, and with insufficient forces, equipment, or support, they were forced to retreat or suffer complete defeat. The chief U.S. military advisor to the Philippines was a man who later became a general, but Douglas MacArthur, he was the son of an American Civil War hero. He was ordered to abandon the fort at Corregidor, along with his family who were with him on the Bataan Peninsula. And as MacArthur left, he was forced to leave behind some 90,000 American and Filipino troops, as well as families and friends and people they had come to know and love, many of them who he knew would suffer at the hands of Japanese invaders. Upon arriving in Australia, where he was evacuated to, and learning that there would be no immediate relief that he could provide to the Philippines, he called the press and asked them to get a message out to the Filipinos and to the Philippine Islands, and it was the message that I will return. MacArthur wanted the people and his own troops to know that they had not been forgotten, they had not been abandoned. He wanted them to have hope, knowing that much difficulty and suffering awaited them until he could return with sufficient forces to push the Japanese off of those Philippine Islands. He didn't want them to lose hope or to think that they had been abandoned and forgotten. Well, it took three years, a little over three years, but in October of 1944, just hours after his troops landed, MacArthur waded ashore onto the Philippine island of Leyte and made a radio broadcast again in which he said, people of the Philippines, I have returned. A few months later, the Japanese were routed. The islands were again under control of American and Filipino forces. And while only a third of those who had been left behind, that would have been about 30,000 of those troops, survived to see the return of MacArthur and the defeat of the Japanese invaders, 
It was the hope and the promise of MacArthur's return that helped to give them resolve to continue fighting, to continue holding out, to persevere under and resist against all odds those three-something years. I was reminded of that because in the Old Testament, Israel had been given several promises in which to hope. And Israel went through quite a bit of up and downs in her history, some of them brought on through her own disobedience. But these promises went back not three years, not five years, not ten years, not fifty years, not even a hundred years, but thousands of years. And it was the continued promise of God's coming to build a new kingdom. And while Israel was the guardian of this promise, they were also supposed to be the messenger of this promise and proclaim it to all the nations. This morning, the message we're going to look at is one of hope. It's one of comfort. It was a continuation of the promise of blessing we ended on last week, but it picks up on the theme and runs back to the very first chapters of Genesis. And it continues throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. The reason the promise by Douglas MacArthur provided hope to the Americans and the Filipinos left behind is because of the character and the authority of the person who made the promise. In a similar but greater way, God outlines his character He outlines his credentials so that the promise of the coming kingdom would have its desired effect. The effect of creating hope, of motivation for obedience in the present, and persevering to the end. The message God gives Haggai to proclaim is intended to bring comfort as it reminds Israel of who God is. His authority and ultimately his kingdom promises while motivating them to obey now, to persevere now, to live now. So this morning, as we look at this message, hundreds of years later, a couple thousand years later, we're going to look at it as well to still find that same comfort. And it's in comfort that's found in the character and the promises of God as we seek to live as faithful disciples of Jesus Christ in the midst of a sinful world. So read along with me as we read these final few verses of Haggai, and Haggai beginning in verse 20 of chapter 2. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms, destroy the powers of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Pray with me as we begin our study this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it has to teach us in this morning. We thank you for the hope that is found in these verses. Help us to to see, to recognize this hope as it really is, as a concrete truth. This is not abstract. Help us to take that. Help it to fill us with resolve to persevere, to obey you, to seek to build your kingdom now. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 
Well, here in these verses, we return to a people who have just recently, well, at least in the past couple of decades, returned to their homeland from captivity in Babylon. They're still subjects of a foreign ruler, surrounded by enemies that hate them, suffering the consequences of nearly two decades of disobedience, having just about four months earlier heard the message of Haggai, repented, and begun rebuilding the temple, begun obeying again or preparing for the rebuilding of the temple. Those nearly two decades of disobedience had resulted in famine, drought, pestilence, and poverty. Well, here God delivers a final message through Haggai of encouragement and blessing around the coming kingdom of God. On the heels of the message we looked at last week, where the nation was promised blessing from this day forward, we're introduced to a blessing that is greater than the filling of the barns, greater than the budding of the vine, greater than the harvesting of the fruit of the trees that the people were looking for. This was something that they weren't asking for, but was an even greater blessing. And we see the promise of a kingdom a kingdom where those who love God will dwell for all eternity in peace and joy, where the thoughts of drought, of famine, of hardship, or suffering are a completely foreign concept. Look with me at verse 20, and notice the timing of this message in verse 20. We read that the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Well, what's significant about that timing? Well, it came the very same day as the previous message Haggai delivered that we looked at last week. So that same day, two different messages come to Haggai. Perhaps it was in the morning that he delivered the first. It's now evening that he's delivering the second. Okay, that's an interesting thing to know, but why is that important? What does that mean? Well, notice how verse 19 ended. That's the first message. It ended with God promises to bless from this day. Remember, he was answering the unasked question, or at least the question that we don't see in the text, but it was implicit in the answer itself, that the people wanted to see God's blessing now. They wanted to know that their repentance had been worth it, that God was really going to bless them. So God promised that from this day I will bless you. Though you're still reaping the consequences, though a new harvest hasn't yet come to replace the devastation of the harvests through the famine and the drought from your disobedience, yet I will bless you from this day, today. As we looked at last week, there was an implication that the people were getting impatient. They wanted to know if it had been worth it. They were repenting from the sin. There's all of these preparations that were going into the rebuilding of the, the temple. However, as we're about to see, Verse 19 wasn't the end of the blessings and the promises of blessing that day. God wasn't done. More than the temporal blessings of future harvest, he intends to confirm his promise of eschatological, that is, future and eternal blessing in line with Abraham and David. So that very same day, he delivers a final message through Haggai to Zerubbabel. We don't know how many heard the message that day that went to Zerubbabel. But it was clearly shared, it was written down, it was made known throughout the land so that we even have it today. After noting the timing of this message, God repeats a theme he has introduced, in fact, he introduced two months earlier through Haggai. That is the shaking of the heavens and the earth. Now, it doesn't sound like blessing language at first, but we have to continue reading to see that. In verse 21, 
we see how we can take comfort in God's character as creator. Here we see introduced the comfort and blessing that comes from that character as creator. This is part of establishing his credentials so that the hope of the promise of the coming kingdom would be much more real. In other words, you trust in something if you know it's going to be real. Can you really offer me that? Can I really take hope in that because you can, you can give it to me? So God begins to establish those credentials. This time God leaves out what he had said in verse 6 of chapter 2 where he had said again and in a little while. We saw that back in verse 6. This time he simply notes the future. I will shake the heavens and the earth. Again, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but that previous reference, the again there, was a reference to shaking the world and having the people think back and remember his presence, his power in delivering them from Egypt, of establishing them as a nation, of having made those covenantal promises to them. And the reason for the use of again in verse 6 was to remind the people of their covenant with God and the blessings and curses that accompanied obedience and disobedience while still looking forward. Here in verse 21, though, God is really only interested in looking forward. Certainly he uses the language of creator, but he's directing their attention forward. Yes, he's established his power previously, but the focus now is primarily on what he will do. As creator, but will do. And he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. You know, mankind thinks that they are pretty powerful in what they've been able to accomplish. And we've built some pretty amazing and, frankly, some pretty terrifying things. While the atomic bombs of World War II were devastating, the largest nuclear bomb ever detonated was almost you know, 16 years later, and it was done by the Russians, and it was called the Tsar Bomba, or the King of Bombs. It wasn't practical or useful, but it was Russia's attempt to show their power in the nuclear arms race, and that bomb was 3,500 times more powerful than what was used at Hiroshima. I mean, it's hard to even fathom that intense of an explosion and that intense of devastation. And yet, did you realize that a 9.0 earthquake is nearly two times the power of that bomb? 2004, there was a 9.1 earthquake off of Sumatra, which created tidal waves, killing over 24,000 people. More recently, in 2011, there was an earthquake off the coast of Japan of a similar magnitude, which wreaked havoc on the Fukushima power plant, created tidal waves as well. In fact, there have been several others of similar or greater power in the past 50 to 100 years. And as powerful as those earthquakes are, they likely pale in comparison to the shaking of the earth during Noah's flood when the deeps were broken up. It would have been devastating the amount of power that would have been produced. Throughout the Old and even in the New Testament, we read of God's power as creator. As powerful as we think we are as people, as much power as we have harnessed, we have barely begun to even scratch the surface of God's power. When it comes to creation, he brought it into existence out of nothing. We're good at breaking things, but we're not so good at bringing things together out of nothing. And then God took what he brought out of nothing and began to form it and create it into something that we couldn't do. We can't replicate life. And yet we consider this world that he's made. We look at it and we see so much beauty in it, rightfully so, 
But this is a world that was cursed at creation and then cursed again at the flood. Can you imagine what this world will be like when we have the new heavens and the new earth? A world that is not doubly cursed, bearing the effects and the scars of sin. This shaping here will reshape first the world, and then there will be a final shaking of this world that leads to the new heavens and the new earth. What is interesting, though, is that all of this is presented here by God as blessing. This future shaking will be blessing because it will lead to the establishment of God's kingdom. But it's important to note that it will not be a blessing for everyone. It is absolutely a blessing, but not for everyone. Only for those who, like post-exilic Israel, have repented and turned to God. For all others, the shaking will be a terrible judgment. Just like in Noah's day, where there are those who were saved and the ark was salvation. But for many, it was curse. In Revelation, we see that there will be the removal of believers in God. Then over half of the world population will be destroyed. And then a final battle will destroy the armies and many of the rulers of the kingdoms or nations of the world who war against God. This shaking, that time of shaking, is going to lead to devastation and judgment for many. And yet it's presented here as blessing for those who have turned and repented to God. It is comforting to recognize that God is in control of creation. To understand that things do not happen by accident. That the laws of nature are maintained by a skillful creator, not happenstance. Knowing who made something gives comfort. It gives confidence. And when we buy something, we like to know who made it. We want to know, is it going to work? Is it going to last? Businesses and persons, they put their name on something because it establishes who made it, the credibility behind it. This power of God and God's character creator is the foundation upon which the overturning of the nations and the fulfillment of his promises is built here in Haggai 2. The reference to the shaking of the heavens and the earth provides a picturesque reminder of this power, this authority, and this promise. Before moving from the power over nature now to the authority over nations. And so Jesus provides, sorry, Haggai provides through, through this message that God gave him additional comfort. Comfort in God's authority over the nations. God's power over creation certainly brings comfort, but what about the nations and rulers? If there was ever a place where it feels like God is not in control, it really seems to be over the world and human events, isn't it? I'm not saying that's true, but it feels that way at times. I think we'd be dishonest if we didn't say it certainly feels that way. It feels like things are out of control. I mean, surely it can't be God's plan for the Taliban to again rule over Afghanistan, can it? Surely it can't be God's plan for North Korea to oppress its people and torture and kill Christians, can it? Surely it can't be God's plan for China to run secret prisons where they enslave minorities, ethnic minorities, and Christians, can it? How do we answer that? How could a good God allow all that we see transpiring in the world? How can a God who is really in control allow these things? It's a good question. It's a hard question, isn't it? 
and one that requires us to stop and seriously consider what we believe. But in answering it, perhaps more importantly, we need to evaluate what we are assuming when we ask that question. You see, when we evaluate these things, when we see the suffering, and then turn around and ask, how could a good God allow this? We assume something that we need to stop and ask, are we assuming correctly? And what we are assuming is that no person deserves this suffering. But think carefully about that assumption. In order for suffering to be truly unjust, in other words, persons should never suffer, to be completely undeserving of these things, then they have to be perfectly righteous people, perfectly just people. And yet we know, or what do we know, is the consequence of sin. The consequence of sin is suffering and death. There's not a person who has walked this planet who has lived righteously, truly righteously, other than Jesus Christ. There's none of us who are without sin. There is none who does good to please God in and of themselves. What we need to do is we need to recalibrate our thinking to questions like that. To realize that any time we do not experience suffering and death, we are getting the opposite of what we deserve. In other words, when I am not suffering, that is when I'm not getting what I deserve. It's when I'm suffering that I'm getting what I deserve as a sinner. And that applies to every person. It doesn't make it any less painful. It doesn't mean we do not try to alleviate pain and suffering in this world. But we must remember that until Christ returns, suffering and death will be a regular part of human existence because of sin and its consequences. Jesus answers this hard question in Luke 13 when it was reported how Pilate had killed several Galilean Jews and taken their blood and mixed it with their sacrifices on the altar. This was horribly offensive, not only the murder of these Galileans, but the defiling of their worship. Jesus' answer, though, was that unless persons repented of their sin, death is the only outcome that they can expect. In fact, the implication from Luke 13 is that while these persons were no worse than the others, they did not have true faith in God, they had not repented. In fact, when Jesus says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish, he was looking beyond the physical death that is common to all persons and looking at whether you will live in eternity. Or will you suffer outside of the kingdom in hell? This begins to answer the hard question of how a good God would allow or cause the things we see in the world. How can he really be in control? But there's an additional consideration, and we've talked about this before, which is how limited our perspective is. Not only do we begin with wrong assumptions, we also think we see all and know all. If all someone ever saw of the life of an Olympic gymnast was the hours of training, they would think their life was torture and pain. Wouldn't they? That's all they ever saw. And yet when they zoom out and you get the bigger picture, when you see the reason for the training, the goal of the training, the rejoicing at the end of the path, it suddenly makes sense because you have perspective. We need to remember how little our view of the big picture is. What a limited perspective, both in time 
as well as in our own time. And that really brings us back to the comfort Haggai is bringing to post-exilic Israel in verse 22, where three times God says that he will overthrow or destroy the power of the world's kingdoms. Now, why is this comforting to Israel? And why should it be comforting to us? First, because there has never been a kingdom that has always acted in perfect righteousness. Even human governments, every human government and kingdom hurts people, whether purposely or inadvertently through negligence and mismanagement. And that's why even the founders of our nation tried to make it so the government was limited and controlled by the people, because they know that government is always going to end up hurting people. There is no perfect government. And so as we, no matter what time people have lived in, governments, empires, have hurt people. And so they long for that release. They long for the overturn of those governments. And so it's comforting to know that God is in control. For Israel specifically, surrounded by nations and people that hated her, this promise of the overturning of nations was comforting. It was a reminder that God was in charge. And they could look back into their recent history to see God's deliverance out of Babylon, his overturning of the Babylonian kingdom. Back to Jerusalem, now that they were in Jerusalem, and how that even came about through Cyrus and God moving the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he would send them back. Turn with me to Isaiah 40. As we look at God's power over the nations and how it is described Isaiah 40, verse 21, Isaiah is speaking for the Lord, asks, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Notice, by the way, the use of creation terminology describing the character of God, the character's creator as he goes into this next piece. It is he who sits above the cities of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches, out the he- who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. Turn to Psalm 2. Again, look at how completely in control God is of nations and governments. Why are the nations in uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger. He will terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have instilled my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath will soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Notice again, that time, that overturning of kings and kingdoms is a blessing for those who take refuge in God. And that's why this overturning of nations is seen as blessing here. God is in complete control of all that transpires. And that should bring great comfort. While we often do not know the why, nothing the kingdoms of the earth can do or is able to thwart his perfect plan. And since the kingdoms of this world can never offer us the freedom from pain, from suffering that we really long for, we don't need to despair when things look hopeless because they were never our salvation anyway. Because our hope is in the heavenly kingdom. As the author of Hebrews writes in the end of chapter 12, actually when quoting and referencing Haggai, we look for that unshakable kingdom. Finally, this promise means that God also has the authority and plan for the establishment of the new kingdom. The fact that he can overturn kingdoms begins to show and establish that authority. We've got a history of that happening. We also see that he has a plan for a new kingdom. This message includes the promise of a future kingdom after the overturning of all other kingdoms of the world. In fact, this sounds very similar to the kingdom in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which crushes the statue a statue that represented many of the kingdoms of this world or the empires of this world and grows to fill the whole earth. God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, has declared that he will build and establish that new kingdom in which righteousness dwells. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.13, but according to his promise, and by the way, this is looking back all the way into the Old Testament to those promises, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, the reason this is so comforting is because there is no kingdom, no nation, no government in this earth that we should be looking to. As long as I don't hope in them, I can't be disappointed. It's when we put our hope in nations, in rulers, in governors, in laws, in legislatures. It's when our hope and our happiness is in those things that we're going to be devastated and discouraged because they will let you down over and over and over again. In order to provide comfort to post-exilic Israel, God has iterated his character as creator, the one who has made and shakes the heavens and the earth, his authority over kings and kingdoms, and lastly, he moves into the promise of this future kingdom. And he does it in a unique way. God says in verse 23 that on that day, and here it's a reference to a time, it's an idiom for at that time, at the time that the heavens and the earth are shaking the kingdoms of the world. Now, it may not all happen in a 24-hour day, but it will be at that time. God will take Zerubbabel and make him like a signet ring because he has chosen him. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that he's taken someone like a signet ring because he has chosen him? 
And how does that provide hope and encouragement for Israel, and how does that affect us? First, we need to be reminded that Zerubbabel was a descendant of King David. We need to remember that God had promised that the coming kingdom, the future kingdom, would be ruled by a Davidic king, one who is in the line of David. However, at the time preceding and during the start of the Babylonian invasion and captivity, looking back now 80 to 100 years, Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jeconiah or Coniah, had that kingdom torn from him. That was the end of the Davidic monarchy. Now there was no kingdom. Israel was merely a province of Persia. It was likely that most of post-exilic Israel had really given up any thought of the Davidic monarchy and that promise so many years before. I mean, there's not even a kingdom here. However, God closes out his message here by reiterating his promise of the future son of David who will usher in all the promises of the kingdom of God. And as a sign and seal of that promise, God marks out Zerubbabel, a direct descendant of David, as the one through whom the Messiah, the son of David, would come. Not only that, he promises that Zerubbabel himself, like David, will be given a place of prominence in the future kingdom. And it will be like a signet ring. Well, what does that mean? What is a signet ring? A signet ring was usually worn by a ruler or kept close to their persons. It would be used to stamp things. It was the sign, it was the seal and the mark of authorship and authority of the king. It would be used to stamp official document, documents, giving them credibility, giving them authority. When promising something, whether it be a decree, whether it be fulfilling the needs of someone when promising something, that signet ring meant that all the power of the king would be brought to bear to fulfill the promise. And so Zerubbabel is marked out to serve as a sign and guarantee that God will fulfill his promise. And in the kingdom to come, because all saints will be raised in that future kingdom, Zerubbabel will have a special service. And will also be a sign and a reminder now looking back that God keeps his promises. So he was to serve at that moment, at that day, as the promise of what was to come. He will be raised and he will serve as a signet ring, as a sign in that coming kingdom. And whatever that special service is that he will serve in the kingdom, as a sign and a reminder that God keeps his promises. There's much more about the kingdom. We've got the Bible study, the Sunday school study that David's been going through as you've been talking about that, about the kingdom and the promises and the hope. But in other words, to Israel and to us today, we have the reiteration of the Davidic promises through Zerubbabel that God would do everything he had promised that he would do. But notice that God doesn't promise to rebuild the monarchy of Israel in that day. He doesn't promise to rebuild that monarchy of Israel. He promises, though, a coming kingdom with a Davidic king in the line of Zerubbabel. He promises that he will preserve the line of David until the kingdom of God is established on this earth. This promise by God was the reinstatement of the Davidic line that had, from human perspective, appeared to have ended about 100 years earlier. 
It was the reaffirmation of the Davidic promises. God was not done with Israel. He was not done because Israel was going to be a light to the nations. He was going to use them so that he would be glorified. Not because Israel was so wonderful, but he had said, I will use you to make my glory known. God was not done with Israel. He is not done with Israel and still intends to fulfill his promises to Israel. And Zerubbabel was an indication and a sign of this. In Matthew 1, Zerubbabel is named as the continuation of the line of David after the deportation and after the return to Israel that culminates there in Matthew 1 in the birth of Jesus Christ. In fact, this conclusion to Haggai is a perfect segue back into our study of Matthew next week. As we once again pick up Matthew's description of Jesus, the promised messianic king, that son of David. As we look at the message of the kingdom that he brings. As the king himself delivers the message, though he has not yet ascended to the throne of David. We end Haggai with the note and promise that God will return to complete his work. That's the promise here. It's implicit in all that is said. And I understand that there's, there's a few links here that for the sake of time we couldn't go through an entire history of the Old Testament to show all of the links. But if you know anything of the promises to David in 2 Samuel 7 of the establishment of the Davidic kingdom, traced all the way back to the promises to Moses that he would, in his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. As Paul ties that together in Galatians, that this one from Israel, who would bless all the nations, was Jesus Christ. There's a train here. It's often called a scarlet thread of redemption around this messianic promise of Jesus Christ and the, what culminates in this future kingdom. But we end with this note and promise that God will return to complete his work and bring about a kingdom that has no end, ruled over by the son of David. In that kingdom, Zerubbabel will serve as the sign of authority and promises of God. That God keeps his promises. That when God sets out to do something, he will accomplish what he says he will do. The promise of this kingdom and our ability to be partakers in it is what brings us hope to persevere on the narrow road in the midst of a world that is filled with suffering, with war, with violence, and sin. Because like Israel, we are still looking for the arrival of the king who will establish his kingdom and bring an end to famine, to drought, to poverty, to injustice, to suffering, to violence, all of which is because of sin. The question is, the question before all of us this morning is, are you ready for the reign of the king? That's really where all of this takes us, is are you ready for the king's reign? It's not a simply enough to want to be part of the kingdom. That's a good place to start, but it's not enough. The question, it's a question we've been asking throughout our study of Matthew, is are you actually a citizen of the kingdom of God? Have you pledged your allegiance to him? Do you desire to serve him? Do you live so that you might hear, well done, good and faithful servant from that king? See, if you're not a servant of the king, if you do not live today as God's citizen and subject, then you will not be a partaker of this kingdom. And in that case, there is no blessing or hope for you here. 
Instead, you'll find yourself outside of the kingdom, in the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worst suffering of this world will be a pleasant memory. And while that is the just and fair consequence for our sin, God does not desire that end for any. He's offered the way of salvation. Will you answer his call? If you have not confessed your sin and turned to God asking for his mercy, then do it today. There is not a single person he will turn away. While the path is narrow and the door is small, Jesus' yoke is easy, his burden is light, and yet there are far too few who find their way into the kingdom. And for those who are in the kingdom, who claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, a citizen of the kingdom, do you live like it? Are you living like it? Will you live like it? Will you live in such a way that you shine a light on that entrance into the kingdom? That you shine a light on that narrow path, that others will find it. This light will often shine brightest in adversity and suffering. It's then that others will see the true character of a disciple of Jesus Christ, a citizen of the kingdom. That's because you can discern a person's desires, what they trust in, by how easily they are affected, both by difficulty as well as temporal prosperity. And I'm not describing some form of stoicism that we should have, where we are emotionless persons. In fact, that itself is incredibly dangerous. It's a dangerous place to be because it's often a sign of self-reliance, not trusting God. It fails to ask, what does God desire to show me, to teach me? How does God desire me to love him more in light of this situation, good or bad? Instead, it says, I can remain unaffected. No, what I'm talking about, what I'm really asking is, do you get angry with God when there is difficulty? Do you ask, why me when faced with suffering? If you experience prosperity, do you respond with thanksgiving? Not just happiness, but with thanksgiving. Do you ask, how does the Lord want me to use these things? However little, however much. How can I bless others with what I've been given? It's in suffering and adversary that more than ever we need to be reminded of the hope of the kingdom so that we might reflect the light of the kingdom to the world around us. It's in the midst of suffering and adversity that we need to be reminded of these things. We need others to see that our hope is not in the things of this world, that our joy does not wax or wane based upon wealth or status or how good the week has gone doesn't mean it's not hard. doesn't mean we don't come alongside. That we don't help carry one another's burdens. But it means that we're never satisfied with blessings of this world. Our hope rests in the life to come and in that future blessing. In C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, he says this of our tendency to settle for temporary happiness when eternal blessings have been offered. He says, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. God offers to the people of Israel what they need, not what they asked for. He knows better than they themselves what they truly yearn for, which is rest. Rest from strife, rest from troubles, rest from fruitless labor. 
That's what they wanted. That was the blessing they were asking for. When they were asking for the temporal blessings, but what God was saying is it's not found in those things. And that's why he said, from this day, I will bless you. And he moves immediately into the promise of the kingdom to come. And that same offer is made to us today. That offer of rest in the kingdom. Rest in Christ. Rest in God. Rest in Jesus, who is the culmination of all of these promises. As Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder of these words to Zerubbabel and Israel so many years ago. Father, that they, in these promises, these reminders of your character as creator, in the promise of your coming kingdom, of your power and authority over kings and nations, that we can find hope, we can find comfort. But it's not because we'll simply have relief in this life. It's because of that ultimate promise, which is the coming kingdom. Let us pray for each one of those who hears this morning that they would be able to experience that hope and that joy and the hope of the promise to come. That it would encourage them, that they would delight in it. For any who have not pledged their allegiance to you, bowed their knee to you, who have repented of their sins, who desire to live according to your way, that they would do that this morning. Father, help us to live as citizens of your kingdom, to place our hope and fix our hope on that unshakable kingdom so that we would not be tossed to and fro by, the, by this world, by the ever-changing nature of people and governments and events and circumstances. Help us to fix our hope where it belongs so that we would be lights we would be, as it were, the, the lighthouse pointing the way to salvation, not rocked and moved and torn about by the winds of adversity, the seas of adversity that are going to come. We pray these things in your name. Amen.